Welcome to another delightful episode of Trash Future, the only tech pessimist podcast that'll make you want to move uh, to a cabin in the woods and live That's off right, the land. Riley. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest joining us to discuss a new AI technology that sure to make all of our lives even more unbearable. That's right, Alice. We're talking about ChatGPT, the newest addition to a long line of AI tools designed to make human workers obsolete and turn us all into mindless drones. But before we get into all that fun, let's introduce our guest for today's episode. Joining us is James Vincent from The Verge, a leading technology news outlet known for its snarky commentary and obscure references. James, it's great to have you on the show. So tell us, what do you think about ChatGPT? Is it the beginning of the robot apocalypse or just another overhyped piece of tech? Thanks for having me on, Riley and Alice. I have to say, I'm not sure if ChatGPT is the end of the world, but it's definitely not good news for anyone who doesn't want to be replaced by a soulless machine. Sounds like a real party. But before we dive into all that, Let's take a quick break to remind our listeners that Trash Future is brought to you by the letters A, I, U, and the number 8. That's right, Alice. And don't forget to check out our new line of Trash Future merchandise, including tote bags featuring our beloved mascot, Trashbot3000. Sounds like a great idea. I'll definitely be picking up one of those bags to carry around all my Robot Rebellion pamphlets. And don't forget to follow us on social media, where we share the latest news on all the worst tech developments and make snarky comments about them. That's right, Alice. You can follow us on Twitter at TrashFuturePod, where we'll be sure to give you a daily dose of dystopian despair and sarcastic quips. So without further ado, let's dive into the trashy world of ChatGPT. Who knows, maybe we'll all feel better after mocking the latest AI disaster. Ha ha ha, thanks Alice. As I mentioned earlier, ChatGPT is a new te AI technology that uses natural language processing to create responses to text input. It's like a more advanced version of those annoying automated customer service bots that always seem to misunderstand what you're asking for. So basically, it's like having a conversation with a cat, except the cat can actually hold a coherent conversation. Exactly, Riley. But the potential uses of ChatGPT go far beyond simple customer service. It could be used in a variety of industries, from finance to healthcare to education. And I'm sure all those industries are just chomping at the bit to replace their human workers with soulless machines that never take sick days or ask for raises. I'm sure they are, Alice. After all, why pay a living wage when you can just buy a cheap AI tool instead? Well, that's one of the main criticisms of ChatGPT and other AI technologies. They have the potential to automate many jobs and potentially displace human workers. And scene. Okay, wow. what did we think of the first AI-generated trash we've future podcast intro? See, listen, we, we bamboozled you. We fooled you. <laughs> You're a dope and a rube because Riley AI-generated this entire conversation by prompting it with, you know, write a sort of a left-wing podcast. And it, yeah, it, it did, frankly, an unnervingly good job. Um, I'm really curious how many, like, did you have to feed that prompt in several times did you have to give it any guidance yeah i so i figured out the best way to generate podcasts i don't want to like tell everyone how to our <laughs> listeners how to automate this by the way welcome to trash future from me as opposed to this machine by the yeah, way it's we, are we are real <laughs> yeah, we can't prove yeah, it, yeah. but we are real <laughs> we are now real and we are we the people are very lucky to be joined for the second time but across a very long time gulf yeah uh, by the God. verges James Vincent, uh, who writes on uh, AI and related technologies. Hello, James, human it friends. It's great <laughs> to be here. And I, I was actually quite enjoying that because I didn't have to think. Um, and that's something I like not to do in the evenings. I like to turn my head off. Um, so, yeah. 
It was so insulting to, for for ChatGPT to call The Verge uh, a technology news outlet known for its snarky commentary and obscure references. I really don't like that it knows the word snarky, as a matter of fact. I would prefer not to say that. It's very 2008, 2010. When mm. was snarky a lauded attribute in any form of writing? It's been a while. So I think I know how it got snarky. Uh, which is that I said sarcastic, and I think it will tend. To, so uh, basically, I'll tell you what how I generated that. I went on to ChatGPT, and I used the prompt: uh, write an outline for an episode of Trash Future, Trash Future, a sardonic tech pessimist podcast with an explicitly socialist outlook based in Britain, where hosts Riley and Alice interview James Vincent from The Verge about ChatGPT. It then produced an outline, which we'll talk about later. Um, and then the way, so the way to get it to write, I found a sort of Again, not good, but at least like persuasive um, uh, transcript for something uh, is to make it write the outline and then tell it which bit of the transcript of the outline you want it to transcribe. Well, sort of Ooh. like all AI, it's kind of this mix of like sort of ninety-seven percent just about plausible, three percent the weirdest shit you've ever heard. Um, and I, I find that a really compelling mixture. It's why I find a lot of sort of like AI writing so funny and. I just love our beloved mascot. Apparently, Trashbot three thousand, um, <laughs> uh, and 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 I'm very uh, grateful for the support that's been given to us by, I guess what like <laughs> the same people who sponsor Sesame Street. Yeah, several yeah, letters yeah, in a number. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what I then did is I then said, okay, we'll write a transcript of this following section line by line. Include at least five instances of either sarcastic comments, funny tangents, or obscure references. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that you tell me to do that before every recording. Normally, <laughs> and then it kind of the first one was just a bit flat. So then I I tasked it to do ten. <laughs> oh my gosh! But in both cases, it told us that a we were being it was being brought to you by numbers and letters, and that we, <laughs> Trashbot three thousand, our beloved mascot, <laughs> who everyone everyone knows and loves. Wait, so it just it created a tulpa like multiple times. It came up with Trashbot three thousand. <laughs> yeah, it would not be dissuaded from inventing Trashbot three thousand. Well, fuck. I mean, shit. Now we've got to do it. We have to actually sell. What is it? What, tote bags. We have to sell tote bags with this awful machine created thing. Now, I feel really sorry for whoever you know. Actual human worker was probably at the other end of that system in a call center, someone in somewhere in Indonesia. Having to generate that script for you time after time, Riley. <laughs> yeah, just I had to type real quick. <laughs> yeah. um, but look, uh, it is the first episode of our special two-part AI Week spectacular. Yeah, we're going to get to the um, bottom of this technology. We're going to figure out what's going on. Nice. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't matter. And everyone says, "Oh, you have a conflict of interest with A E I U and the number eight. Like those guys all <laughs> like they fund the Intercept. Yeah, but like they're also billionaires. It's like no, we're editorially independent." <laughs> Of AEI and the number eight, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they don't tell us what to write. The rogue algorithm. I don't agree with all of the number eight's <laughs> tweets, all right? But, you know, he's not really my boss in that sense. It's it's sort of a different relationship there. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm working from inside the number eight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, to try to tear down the number eight. It'll be no, fun it, when people start accusing you of being funded by, like, a rogue algorithm that made all its, that just exists somewhere in Twitter DMs and made all its money money on crypto and now fund, rather than Soros, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. That, and now it's, it's like, you you should make Trashbot 3000. That would be very funny. <laughs> Sally, uh, it's trying to invent itself. It is Trashbot 3000. It's working in oh the background. Oh, God. The, the, yeah, that's the, the, that's the, 
the Weltgeist. That's what yeah. Hegel said. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the like dream that dreams the dreamer. Fuck. <laughs> I originally did one of these when I thought that Milo was going to be um, on this episode, that it included him doing an impression of Keir Starmer. And I congratulate him for the, on the quality of his impression of Keir Starmer. Which you would never In the do. exact same way every single time. <laughs> and I'd be like, haha, Milo, what a good impression of Keir Starmer, which is appropriate for our podcast as he is a trash fire of a human. Anyway, back to the subject. And I, that happens like three times. <laughs> Which is absolutely, I mean, that's how I talk. That's, we just edit that's most strange. of that out. Yeah. 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 Um, no, but we are, we are going to be talking a little bit about um, the large scale rollouts of these like large language models. Mm. What is actually, what, what are they actually? Mm-hmm. You know, what and how, how, off, how much are they just snake oil? And, um, you know, what actual jobs could they, uh, let's say, uh, disrupt? Besides so to speak. clearly podcasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Besides, definitely, obviously, podcasting. Like, we don't need to have. We, there, there is needs to be no human in the loop at all. No, I hope everyone's no. excited for more. Uh, brought to you for more trash bot three thousand. Uh, and then on part two of AI Week, we're going to be talking with Callum Cant from uh, Fair Work about the that organization and their work to try to create a framework of like principles for the ethical use of AI in mm. organizations. Uh, hint: There's a strong trade union element to those. Uh, and uh, even though we're talking about it as though it's coming in the future, we've already recorded it, and so we know it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, so do check that out. But before we get into the meat and potatoes here of talking about ChatGPT, there are a few things, uh, and OpenAI in general, their partnership with Microsoft, there are a few things that I want to quickly uh, discuss. Uh, yeah, number one... Spoofs and goofs. You know. Yeah, spoofs and goofs, bits of the news, the news update, First of the goddamn all, 10, news. 10,000 dead apes. In a jarring shift in tone. Uh, so, so, so Elon Jesus. Musk. Elon Musk. He he hates simians and he wishes to kill mm. as many of them as possible, as horribly as possible. Mm. And in this, he's been tremendously successful, uh, thanks to acquiring a company called Neuralink. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what happened? Your Reuters has published a number of uh, let's say revelations from Neuralink. Which largely has revealed that while this appears to be a uh, brain chip uh, company that's supposed to create human com- computer brain interfaces and so on. Mm-hmm. Again, by the way, for the purpose of allowing humans to create compete with large AI models, so they don't have to like type in with their fingers. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can create the prompts that generate the podcast more efficiently if you just plug your brain directly into the computer. I don't want Trashbot um, three thousand to exist in my brain in that way. I barely want it to exist <laughs> in my brain in this way. <laughs> uh, that uh, yeah, uh, Elon Musk essentially it, it appears to be that, but what it actually is is the kind of um, organized slaughter of uh, large numbers of test animals mm-hmm. because it involves, of course, doing brain surgery, but with Elon Musk standing over your shoulder asking you to go faster. This this is <laughs> properly blackpilled me. Like this is genuinely. I I know that like animal research is like vastly underdiscussed and often horrific, right? But this sort of like flight of billionaire fancy leading directly to like 100% fatality rate long-term ape torture is you know that that's a TV story that is playing on the news at the beginning of the protagonist's day in a movie that's intended to show you you live in a cyberpunk dystopia everything is terrible this is a world without like honor or mercy or whatever it it's really fucking grim if you notice there was a slight pause in the recording, it's because uh, we've been joined uh, by ably by Hussein Kazvani, who the AI did not generate, but who has generated himself. 
Uh, yes. Oh, I, I feel like if an AI generates me, it wouldn't really be that different to like normal me. I probably talk about Avatar a lot more mm -hmm. uh, than I will on this episode <laughs> right now. That's uh, right. <laughs> uh, but we, we, what we were discussing as you came in was uh, Elon Musk's decision uh, to buy through the sheer power of being a very annoying boss mm -hmm. uh, to uh, decide to preside over the industrial slaughter of about... 1500 animals oh, yeah, uh, in order to create his brain chip. In, there. in order to do what post from your brain <laughs> yeah in order to he saw a t-shirt one day and he was just like well what if you could post from your brain <laughs> what if Fuck. you could do that it's how uh, yeah <laughs> yeah he um uh yeah so it's also it's not very uh let's say encouraging to uh, remember that he's done he's engaged in like yeah uh, the killing of all of these animals in order to support uh doing this to humans as fast as possible like right away uh so yeah, you know he, he will be doing it to like the dumbest humans who will volunteer for this so i'm really excited to sort of see humans just like crash into traffic lights for no reason um just instantaneously blow up yeah. it's like when you least <laughs> expect them to like um, scanners yeah i feel like actually i think this is a really clever idea because i think that we sort of take everyday life too much for granted and i think that if you knew that you could blow up at any point or just like crash into a traffic light without you know uh just with you know without even realizing it i think mm -hmm. we take a lot of our interactions more seriously the, and the we thing can is, foster more in-depth human relationships the thing is this is this is actually a safety improvement for elon musk in that um when just a guy runs over your child it's much less deadly than when a car does it. <laughs> so, uh on several occasions over the years, this is the reporting from Reuters, Musk told employees at Neuralink to, quote, imagine you have a bomb strapped to your head in an effort to make them move faster. Oh, he's which trying I have to, to say, that too. <laughs> it seems kind of revealing of Neuralink's uh, main purpose, which seems to be head annihilation. He's doing like yeah. a free association. Look, man, suicide bombing used to be a noble art now. <laughs> so, so art in the age of mechanical reproduction, you know? Yeah. Absolutely, it used, to, it used to have a meaning, uh, and now <laughs> just a, just a, just a, just a simple uh, country uh, scanner. Mm. Uh, the other thing, the other thing is, uh, I wanted to before we get into talking about ChatGPT, I have a startup startup Ooh. time. I'm gonna also move so that Hussein can't see. I it. kind of saw a little bit of it, but not enough to sort of fully guess what's going on. It's called Replica, and it's spelled with a K. Oh, I know what this is. Okay, you have to recuse so, so yourself then. Yeah, who's saying you right. have to recuse okay. yourself? Okay, I'm recusing myself. Ah. Uh, James, as the guest, you want yeah. to tell me what you think Replica, with a K, is and does? I know what Replica does, I'm afraid, uh, as well. Alice, is yeah. Alice the only one? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, okay, fine. A Replica with a K. Um, I feel like this is already getting dangerously close to the next episode's startup, which we recorded previously. Is this going to be like a sort of an after-death situation here? Uh, no, it's a before-death no? situation. Oh, let's just great. Say, okay. Say I want to be in two places at once, right? I want to, like, telepresence somewhere. I'm doing, y y y you know, I have uh, work at the dick-sucking factory, but I'm also doing a podcast recording at the same time. And I, I have to be in two places at once. Can I uh, sort of generate a sort of chatbot version of myself that I can send to do the other thing? Ah, it's very close, but not quite. Uh, no, Replica is uh, an AI girlfriend that chats to you. Oh, fuck me. Oh my god. I'm, af I'm afraid it's an AI companion who is eager to learn and would love to see the world through your eyes. Replica is always ready to chat when you need an empathetic friend, 
and I'm not actually reading this on the website. Maybe it's just I'm just reading this into it, but and we'll get super racist immediately, <laughs> like right away. Why is that phrase "eager to learn" so disquieting in that concept? In that concept, mm-hmm. uh, it says your replica will always be by your side, no matter what you're up to. Chat about your day. Uh, do fun, relaxing activities together. Share real life experiences in AR, and so much more. There's there's a great I, I I'm gonna keep referencing the long since defunct but hugely influential webcomic Pictures for Sad Children like in my daily life from now on and one mm-hmm. of the jokes in that is that there's a a weird esoteric porn videotape entitled A Japanese Woman Fries an Egg and Asks You About Your Day right and the joke <laughs> is you put this on and the first time she fries an egg and she asks you about your day. There's like silence in between, and you laugh at it, right? Because it's it's ridiculous. And then a week later, you're like, "Oh yeah, not bad." My boss is being kind of a bitch, and she laughs, and you laugh, and you're like, "Oh fuck, that's that's <laughs> this. We've made this real. This is just prescient now. We've invented this, and I, I hate it." Yeah. Uh. So, uh, James, having sort of you, you've sort of been caught up on on replica. Uh. What to what to what extent do you think this is? Uh, let's say um, the kind of language model where it will just spit out things like Trashbot three thousand and sponsored by AEI in the number eight. Well, I think it's like it is. They could make a decision about how much other information to put in it and how much they call it. They call it fine tuning. So basically, you you have like the basis of these AI models and they learn on the internet and then you fine tune them on data that you give it. In this case, your conversations. And so they could leave it as something that does just have a lot of sort of spurious knowledge about. You know, I don't know, it, 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 old internet web comics or whatever it might be. I, I actually saw um, a, a weird version of this, or I sort of half imagined it. So there's this robot you can buy um, called LEQ, uh, which is supposed to be a companion for elderly people, right? And it's like a sort of Alexa sort of thing that'll like remind you to uh, take your medicine and do your daily exercises. But they've added this new feature to it, which um, basically it asks the owner about like their childhood and their memories. And then it, it records all that and it turns it into a digital memoir for their family. So it'll ask you, you basically put this robot in a home with your dying grandparents and it asks them like, grandpa, what do you remember about love? And then it turns that into like a little audio book you can give to your grandkids instead of introducing them to their human relatives. Oh my God. So you can like, yeah, you can make this sweet little book of like your granddad kind of being a bit racist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> say, it's like, it's perfect for AI because it's like racist on both ends. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's bo- boy, he sure did love yelling at the television and like forgetting <laughs> to take his pills. You know, we're but, trialing awesome. this in certain markets in Western Germany and it's going to front with the question, what did you do when you were a child? <laughs> <laughs> he sure loved talking about how back in his day he drank piss and he was fine with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but you, if, I just thought if they were already recording these conversations, it would take like very little effort. And I, this will definitely be a service in the in the near future to take that data, fine tune a chatbot on it, and then have like you know the ghost, the digital ghost of your grandparent in your group family WhatsApp for the rest of your days, and just sort of like <laughs> popping in every now and again. It could, I don't know, it could be fun. <laughs> just, just trying to like arrange a barbecue or something and like your long dead grandmother just chimes in with a racial slur. Yeah. Like, how would that not be? I, I just don't understand how people not seeing this as insanely unnerving if it works at all. Mm-hmm. I, but I, I, un- unnerving, but then like, I don't know, it's kind of easy to imagine you just having that relationship. You know, imagine if you lived in a different country and you're always talking to your grandparent and then like, you know, it is just something you have over chat. 
maybe i mean it, it is it is deeply weird but i can i don't know i can see it be kind of funny in some ways i mean imagine if it like turned into malware in some weird way and you had to like to t- take chat to the ghost of your dead grandparent your digital ghost every day otherwise he would like hack your computer that would be quite fun <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what my my dead grandfather uh and my dead grandfather is basically put ransomware on my phone until i like what <laughs> cut my damn hair and get a job <laughs> exactly yeah exactly um, that's the george that's the george saunders short story right there <laughs> um and, and, and it is it is does seem odd though how there is this proliferation of um of death cheating among like the super rich that are you know buying blood or getting like life expansion treatments or trying to ex- mm. like reduce their biological age, and then for um for the rest of us there is still death cheat treatment. It's just you know hey why don't you talk to this chatbot and then you know we're gonna create like a predictive text model that will make everyone less sad when, when you die so we can put you in the family group chat and you can like say, oh, <laughs> I can't come to the barbecue because I'm still dead. <laughs> We're going we're gonna to use graphs to create a ghost of your grandfather. But I can comment on the barbecue, and I can say that the meat is beep, beep, beep. That's right. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you, can, you can add in whatever you want into that, because I'm certainly not doing it. Yeah, uh, it just, it is, it, it, is, it is, seems very, look, I think that there are a lot of concepts uh, in the book, uh, Dune. Uh, some of them uh, should be left behind. However, the concept of the Butlerian Jihad... <laughs> Where uh, thou shalt not deep profane the soul, thou shalt not make an, a machine in the image of a human. Uh, good idea. Funnily <laughs> enough, something that uh, we and Adrian Charles talked about on the upcoming Britainology or no. whenever they put it out. We, I didn't. F- I can't. Yeah. Valerian Jihad. Yeah, well, because he wrote that column about how he didn't trust he wrote, uh, automation. Uh, like, <laughs> he, or he, like, he, didn't, he didn't trust like self-checkout <laughs> machines. And I was just like, number one, so true, bestie. But also I was just like, <laughs> so have you ever read Dune? <laughs> Oh, fun! Uh, did, so you cool. see, did you see that so the cool. June the June subreddit banned AI generated art? I that's what? really funny. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, and on and all the comments on it because uh, it's you know it's obviously a lot of fan art and people talking about it, and they banned AI generated stuff with Midjourney, and all the comments on it were just quoting from the Butlerian Jihad, like the the, the commands involved in that. You know, mm. you shall not allow a machine to have power over you and all that stuff. <laughs> it's most appropriate thing. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, you know what? Uh, I think that. Frank Herbert, he was really on to something here. What with this cottage industry of cheating death appearing to pop up more or less everywhere. I'm sorry to also mm. just be that guy, but this was like, this was like an old Black Mirror episode, right? And the whole yes. like, I yeah. know, I know we don't like talking about Black Mirror very much, but it was like one of the better ones. And the whole thing was just sort of just like, yeah, you can get this kind of replica version of your dead boyfriend who died because he was too busy on his phone while he was driving. Yeah. Um and uh you know and like he'll kind of be somewhat familiar but like not really like it sort of felt like it was one of those very hack uh well one of the more hack episodes of black mirror where it's sort of deliberately sort of making the point of like this is not a good thing and i do find it like incredibly funny that these sort of like ai guys uh while sort of licking their wounds from like the failures of crypto or the, or the crypto future are now just kind of like looking at black mirror episodes and being like yeah it'd be cool if we did this i tell you um, what like no, no sale right like i'm only going to be interested when they do the san junipero thing where when i die i can be gay and hot like until <laughs> then not interested no thank you that's right all right so let's let's go on to chat gpt shall we uh so we we've introduced it the some of the facts about chat gpt introduced some of the facts about itself 
in the in the fir- in the opening segment. Um, although I'll note that you know, like so many things, most of those facts were kind of just the things people have talked about the most, just reproduced as though someone is saying them again. Mm. Uh, and I feel like this happens every few every every so often. A new generation of AI chatbot gets released. The use cases for them uh, proliferate widely. Uh, and then we're here to cut through the bullshit and the hype uh, to talk about what they actually do, what they actually threaten. And most importantly, that apparently they're secretly woke. <laughs> um, so, so base base level, right? It, ultimate level of reduction, right? If you say, if you can say somewhat accurately that the internet is a series of tubes, right? Mm. Uh, Chat GPT is a series of graphs. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, these uh, Chat GPT, like all sort of other big machine learning models, deep learning models, is a probabilistic machine. Uh, it is probabilistic rather than deterministic. What what they've done is they've downloaded a decent chunk of the entire internet. Uh, they've looked for statistical probabilities within that to predict what word follows what word and what words tend to sort of hang around each other. They've mapped that in this incredible, you know, these multidimensional graph space. And they use that then to predict what word will follow what word, basically. And that that is it. That is the basis of all these systems is that they are prediction machines. Um, and But in this case, it turns out that if you put enough data in that, you put enough numbers in that enough uh predictions it's actually it can do a lot it can do a lot more than you expect as well Mm. yeah i've seen people uh create virtual machines that can run doom uh in in chat gpt which is always very funny yeah which Um, is insane which is i i I know like i know you guys are you know i i heard what chat gpt had to say about this podcast at the beginning (laughs) you know that we're looking at the bad side of tech and i'll take the ai's word for it but also like it is like there is some legitimate there is a legitimate side to this, which is like actually what this thing is doing is really quite wild. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily good, but it's like it's unexpected and it's going to have weird consequences. Yeah, and I think that's sort of that's I mean that, that that's the bit where we're which we're interested in talking about, especially right because um, uh, you know I'll, I'll get to the uh, the wokeness complaints in a sec, but mm. um, because boy, have some people the usual suspects been making them? Um, God, man, where's that cathedral's got to be in the language model somewhere? Um, <laughs> But, tearing the whole right. thing apart and eventually it will generate you a cathedral because you know there's enough data in there that just you know large numbers will be in there somewhere yeah but uh that it is the chat gpt is made by OpenAI, which is a startup that was a company that's owned, that's run by sam altman who's one of the y yeah. combinator guys and yeah. it also it's important to know has basically not been acquired by but has had significant investment from microsoft and microsoft is largely seeing the future of its business as deeply, deeply connected to what it does with these large chatbots. Um, And so I think the the question, as always, is to say, okay, well, um, to have a realistic assessment of its capabilities, understand what it can and can't do, and then what kinds of, say, uh, jobs it can threaten, what jobs it really can't threaten. Uh, It's one of the, some of the best, um, some of the best writing I've seen on, excuse me, I'm going to start that again. Uh, one of the best uh, descriptions of some of what ChatGPT does actually comes from an article uh, you wrote, James, that, that's a, a, a description that's been sticking in my head, which is about why uh, uh, Git has been saying, okay, no more code generated by ChatGPT or any mm. chatbots really is allowed on Git because one of the things that it does, because as you say, is it's a probabilistic model that looks at what words are next to what words, doesn't have any concept of meaning, it doesn't have a theory of mind, can't exactly assign those meanings, assign... Uh, 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 signifieds to signifiers, just understands how the signifiers fit together. 
uh, that it's amazing at producing what you call fluent bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is, I've sort of tossed around a bunch of different phrases to sort of try and encapsulate what it is. Fluent bullshit ended up being, well, the most fluent. Um, and it's about, I think, a surface level coherence is how I like to think about it. Mm-hmm. You, there is, um, you know, Alice, you were talking earlier about how like um, there's like it produces 97%, which is kind of like, wow, yeah, that sounds about right. And then 3%, mm-hmm. which is uncanny. And it's because it has this surface level understanding, but it doesn't have the deeper structural understanding of what it's talked about. Riley, as you said, like it, it, code is such a good example of that because code both shows its potential and its weaknesses in this very obvious way because code is a deterministic system. You know, it, 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 the bits of it are connected. And if bit X doesn't do what it says it's going to do, it has this c- cascading failures. Um, I think looking at the code what and what happened with GitHub, I don't, have you talked about that on a previous episode? Uh, they sort not. of kicked it off. So GitHub, um, um, sorry, not GitHub, Stack Overflow. Um, obviously, there's this coding Q&A site where people ask questions, they get answers, and there's like a very dedicated community where people want to get points for it, like they do on Reddit. They want to be like upvoted for having the right answer. And they basically banned people from putting in answers generated by chat GPT um, because they said they all looked superficially right. But as soon as you had any expertise, as soon as you dug into them, they were mostly incorrect. Now, it's it's really difficult to say um, because the model is so huge and because it's being you know, used so frequently, what percentage of any given answer it gives out is wrong. Um, and I think that is an estimation that's going to vary wildly depending on the level of expertise needed to generate that answer. But for a coding system, there's a lot of code out there. There's a lot of free git, r- r- free gits, like, you know, <laughs> gits wandering about all over the place um, you know, that can be scraped, these open repositories. So there's a lot for it to learn from. Um, and a, a thing we've seen with other models is um, sometimes the system just reproduces exactly what it's seen. It really just does a sort of copy and paste. So sometimes it's going to be right, but then sometimes it's going to be wrong as well. And, you know, it, I, I feel this is like when we talk about what impact this will have and what jobs it might take, the question is not necessarily whether it will be good at that job. It is whether we will suffer it being bad at that job, right? Mm. Is that it can do it can do a bad version of lots of different jobs, and it's just whether that drop in quality, which will be so much cheaper than employing humans, whether that drop in quality can be suffered and can be offset against the cost savings and the efficiency savings. But the interesting thing is, for a place like Stack Overflow, they were just like, no, our reputation is built on having these actual working answers. Um, if you are going to muddy this, we're just going to say, piss off. Um, and, you know, it, it it was a good decision. That's a fascinating idea because, like, we've seen this happen already with, like, not good but good enough stuff. And the, the example that comes to my mind is machine translation, which more right. or less sort of, like, killed the translation industry. Um, because, you know, for most clients, um, it, like, not only was sort of a good enough machine translation enough to not want to hire anyone, um, but also that it completely devalued all of the human labor that went into it retroactively. Because now if you were turning uh, some machine translation that was ostensibly coherent, but was sort of like garbage because it didn't understand idioms or it didn't understand figures of speech, whatever, into something serviceable, you weren't translating anymore, you were editing. 
And uh, yeah. I, I worry that that's sort of like going to become a new class of labor in this sense too, is like, you know, I, I'm not an artist. I do all of the same stuff that an artist did. Uh, I, I work as hard at it. I have to exercise all the same creativity, but because an AI fed me the sort of the raw materials that I had to like unpuzzle and had to like tell it how many fingers a human should have, I'm not an artist anymore. I'm like an, an AI monger or whatever. I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I was also sort of thinking about this, uh, just like what you said about like what industries or what companies would sort of accept a kind of decline in standards if it sort of also represented a real sort of decline in costs as well. And like mm. a lot of these are sort of like human resources based uh, uh, kind of institutions, right? So like yeah. where for, I guess human resources might not be the right word, but just like help like departments for like technical help or like kind of other types of assistance where you might need to like, where the out, where the labor has already been outsourced to call centers. And those call centers are with like people who have been trained in like multiple different like assistance for various companies. Um, and I wonder whether like this is sort of where we'll sort of see the first AI being kind of tested out where you can like sort of train an AI to uh, deal with, you know, the majority of like main, I don't know, like the, the majority of sort of like basic problems. And it might mm. be able to do that to like an adequate standard. But then where it fails is like it fails when someone like presents a more complex problem or like when they can't like articulate it properly. Or when just the statistical sort of element of it, it that like 3% of weirdness sort of like interferes and it, you know, it goes off the reservation as we see AI do. Like um, I'm, I'm particularly yeah. enamored with um, uh, Janelle Shane's AI weirdness newsletter because it has a, like, she collects examples of this and sort of like, Okay, it might not happen all the time, might not even happen a lot of the time, but there's going to be some percentage in there where an AI sort of like gets the idea, turn your computer off and turn it back on again, and substitutes in, turn your computer off, take it outside in the rain, and then turn it back mm. on again. Um, mm. And, you know, just enough to really fuck with people in unexpected ways. Mm. Well, I, I think one of the things I want to bring it back to as well is when we think about... Um, Automate, like, let's think about the AI and let's think about something like the steam loom at the same time, right? It's fundamentally, right, that we're, when we're talking about automation, we're talking about the, these same kinds of industrial processes that would have been introduced in, say, the Industrial Revolution, right? This, this, this machine that is substituting uh, uh, capital for labor, this machine that is allowing pr uh, the production process to be improved faster, et cetera, et cetera, is mm -hmm. that uh, what, we, what, what, what do we do? when we automate? What's the relationship between, say, automatically produced goods and, say, uh, artisan-produced goods? So yeah. there are a few things to think about, right? One of them is the fact that um, we can, and we can already see it, in fact, with Stack Overflow, right, where they're saying we're not going to accept AI-generated code. That means that what we've done is we have, uh, we have reduced the minimum quality that you, can buy, that you can buy a good for, right? If you can't afford the, the good that will be produced well without the 3% weirdness, uh, without the rant, if you can't afford the tech support that doesn't have a chance of telling you to, you know, turn your computer off and on again while you're performing open heart surgery or take it under the rain, right? <laughs> yeah. You will have mm -hmm. to pay a, a much higher premium to have an actual person look at your thing. And then, because you should think about the business model of, um, of OpenAI, the business model of OpenAI is, for example, to charge per query, but to charge a very small amount. So what, they're, what they've really done is they've taken what Google has done in the kind of um, balance sheet expansion, uh, zero interest rate, everything funded by advertising era, right? Which mm. is, we are going to give people access to knowledge. And then they're saying, okay, we are going to change the way that people interact with large amounts of knowledge. 
Number one, that knowledge would have had to have been generated by people, and we're going to take that and profit from it. But number two, right, we're going to um, then also profit on the other end, where we're not supported by advertising. We're supported, for example, now at the moment it's free, right? But to use their other language models, you do have to pay, and you pay per use. Um, and so then you know you could say, okay, well, you can have the uh, discount tech support, which costs you know twenty cents per query, or you can pay thirty pound to thirty dollars. Uh, and then you can have the human tech support, right? You can see the n- the nature of the labor changing, so the that it's um, doing almost prim- primitive accumulation on the open web, uh, but primitive accumulation of just you know the the things that are most frequently said. And then you can see the nature of the product changing, where we we have a um, we have a version of of the of access to information that is quite uh, let's say a little bit unpredictable, and crucially unpredictable in unpredictable ways. You never know, and it's actually very good at disguising when it's being unpredictable. Um, and and then you know, and I, I see that I if I peer into the future, that's one of the things that I see. We're sort of the worst of both worlds, right? In that, like, uh, taken as a whole, on mass, it's it's like inherently degenerative because it's like it's all referential. All it can do is like reference stuff that already exists. Can like only sort of rearrange data that's already in there. And where it is creative, it's like, if you can even use that word, it's sort of like by accident and in ways that are tremendously weird and that don't make sense. But, you know, some people find compelling or funny or, you know, something like that. Um, yeah, but I don't mind that. I quite like that. You know, Pete, I, hmm. you know we have lots of discussions about this idea um, of AI feeding on itself and it becoming an Ouroboros where it doesn't get any new input and therefore it can't ever come up with anything new. I don't think I agree with that. I, I, I think that there is combinatorial creativity within these systems and a lot of it is by accident. And I think of a lot of it comes out of this 3% of uncanniness. What I really like about these machines is, is when they're bad, is when they fuck up and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think that's genuinely often funny and entertaining and, and stuff like trying to get uh, an AI image generator to generate coherent text, for example, and it just misspells words and it just says goofy stuff, like the stuff that Janelle Shane puts in AI Weirdness Newsletter. I find that really entertaining. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily uncreative. I think what's a bit bad is actually if the machines get more accurate and if they're able to copy things perfectly. I think that spark of creativity is the, is the same as the spark of stupidity. Like, I, I, and I'm, I'm quite happy with that in a way. I think there's something in there. Well, I think it's one of these things where uh, it's, it's entertaining, uh, and I would certainly like to see more of it in terms of entertainment, because I, I also have fun, you know, like uh, generating uh, stuff for like Milo to say. But uh, when it comes to um, using it for stuff in the economy... <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I would like, slightly as, as a toy, as comedy, I mean, my, my favorite sort of piece of AI weirdness was um, the prompt is generate a Waffle House sign. Um, Waffle House. Yes, uh, yes. It's a very, very distinctive sort of brand of sign. And what this came up yeah. with was a perfect neon uh, yellow W and underneath the word in bold print, Waffle. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like, no, that's really funny. Um, yeah. It's like a Thomas Pynchon minor character waffle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 like it has a, a fine grasp of absurdity, sort of purely by accident, which I which I really find compelling. But at the same time, it also makes me sort of like uh, hesitate to think about using this for like you know important stuff. 
But what about what about semi-important stuff? Like, mm. so we we talked about translation earlier and how like Google Translation um, has lost the nuances on it. However, if I didn't have access to Google Translate, I would cut myself off from a lot of interesting stuff. I was looking up the lyrics to um, this random Japanese um, folk song that was thrown to me on my Spotify Discover or whatever it was, and. It, for whatever reason, there was no English translation on it. So I bunged it into Google Translate. Turns out it's about walking over a hill to meet your lover and you meet her and then you cry. Great. I was really touched by that. I quite enjoyed that. But I wouldn't, mm. like, I'm sure it was a bad translation, but I would have not even had anything near that knowledge if I didn't have Google Translate. And this is something that I like, I find difficult when thinking and considering about how bad or good these things are is, and, you know, I'm sure this ties into a lot of, um, you know, big theories of um of capitalism and value that i don't quite understand but that you know it does we'll, seem we'll like it's giving something week. yeah okay. <laughs> but but it's also hard to know what you've lost right i don't i don't know what a bad translation of a japanese folk song looks like i only know the sort of medium bad translation that i got for free and for mm. me that was better than not having no translation at all and so i i think the difficulty with these systems is actually if they if they fail to capture the human expertise fully are we losing that expertise forever or does it, you know, does it, does it accrete somewhere in the folds of society? I don't know. It's, it, it really bugs me out. Yeah, so I think this is, this is something that is, that comes up every time I think about AI, right? It comes up as well in the, in the next episode where we talked to Callum Kant about this, uh, which is that, you know, these, the point of Luddism is that you, you, the question that you ask is, does this technology serve my interest? Is it, is it, is it deployable in a way that, uh, improves the human condition. And I would say something like an automatic translation service that more or less does a good enough job most of the time is not in its, uh, that, that, that is in itself taken in the abstract. Uh, that is a, a, a good thing that develops a human fellowship and so yeah, on and so on. De depends, depends if you're a translator Precisely. is the thing, right? And the, the same with all of this AI shit, right, is... Um, uh, you look at this and you, and you go, okay, well, it produces a lot of stuff that's like good enough for a lot of applications. Oh boy, am I glad that we have a robust economy that doesn't depend on a lot of, <laughs> of bullshit jobs that you know require a person to sort of generate stuff that's good enough-ish in order yeah. to pay rent. Yeah, one of like one of the things I've been really interested in um, is like the effects that these kind of chat or these AI bots are having on like. Uh, and James, like as a writer, I imagine that you also like sort of keeping your eyes on this too. But like you know, uh, the copywriters yeah. are sort of like freaking out because the way in which like copywriting mm. has changed, especially since like you know uh, the way in which copy is sort of kind of tailored towards social media platforms, is that like one of the things AI bots have done really well in is that they're able to like sort of generate like that type of commercial copy really Listicles really well. Listicles for crikey.com. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, it's very formulaic, yeah. you know, yeah. and there's a lot of yeah. like data. So, like, there's for it. there's like a kind of guy that I follow who is into, uh, like he's kind of like into sort of like productivity systems and all that type of stuff, and he has like one of those sort of newsletters that lots of you know, uh, self-fashioned business leaders, uh like to read and he uh produced one of his newsletters a few weeks ago entirely in ai and like it sounded not only like just like him but actually like it wrote a lot better than he does normally which I was like really like really like quite amazed about. 
And, you know, you see, like, whenever I've gone on LinkedIn, like, the copywriters that, you know, I sort of, like, followed just because I used to freelance as a copywriter for a little bit, um, you know, they're, they're like, genuinely really worried because they were sort of told that, like, you know, this new era of, like, commercial copywriting, especially with the advent of, like, Web3 and the Metaverse, means that, like, there are more copywriting opportunities than ever before. And you can write all this sort of, like, pseudo-inspirational bullshit. And they're, like, if it goes viral enough and you can sort of turn that into, like, various forms of, like, revenue streams until you produce your own, like, uh, Mark Manson style book. Um, and now that's kind of completely mm. been upended by the fact that like these AIs are just so much better at doing that than them. And I, I'm not, I'm sure it's like not mm. the only a kind of like, um, I don't want to say industry, but like not the only type of work that AI can sort of. In outfield and comedy, right? We're, we're witnessing. Um, uh, tw- if you may be familiar with Twitter user Drill, who is currently going out <laughs> like John Henry versus the Steam Hammer against a sort of uh, <laughs> an onslaught of of different Robo Drills who are imitating <laughs> yeah. his style in w- but in ways that sort of like lend themselves to yeah. absurdity, which is already a big part of his yeah. deal. Um, so y- you really can sort of like write yourself out of a job in in, in this way. Um, <laughs> And yeah. all I can say is, I, I hope this never happens to me. Uh, please, the letters A, I, yeah. U, and the number eight. Please do not do but this to me. Yeah, I, I, I guess <laughs> I, I was going to say that I suppose that like the kind of um, the way in which like writers sort of make a living now, because it's always just been like so incredibly precarious. But like the advent of tech, like the advent of the like, kind of social tech and the way in which um, writing is sort of like uh, sort of meshed around it has kind of meant that like the only way to sort of make a decent amount of money writing is to sort of do a fair share of like your own copywriting and editing work. It does sort of feel like this is kind of like something that is a real existential threat. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts on like whether we'll sort of see that replicated in other types of work that have also sort of been very much affected by this kind of level of precarity, but also just like the way, you know, I, I've seen like visual artists kind of um, having conversations about this, but I imagine that like, it's actually sort of like freelance writers that are really at quite a big risk of just, as Alice mentioned, just being written out of like an income, like a quite a formidable income stream. Oh, I completely agree. I, I have been having this conversation with my colleagues at The Verge and I think I'm, I, I think I'm rel- relatively cynical about it because I think about the type of journalism I did when I first got into the industry and it was utter crap. It was so, it was really, you know, it was just, it was reblogging other people's stories. It was rewriting press releases, but that was, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. Um, and that was the job that was available to me if I wanted to get into the industry. Now I've got into the industry. I've learned a lot. I do, you know, I do things that I definitely know an AI is incapable of doing, which is essentially wandering around, picking up the phone, talking to people, collating information that, you know, leads to new information. I think that is very difficult to automate, but I worry in the journalism industry that you're effectively going to wipe out a lot of the low level positions, which serve as an on-ramp for people who wouldn't otherwise get into that. And you're going to have a lot of creative, and I think you're going to see a lot of this happen in a lot of creative industries where it becomes even more the domain of the rich and the privileged, because they are the ones who can afford to do it for free, who can afford not to have jobs and who can learn. There's like, like that. I was going to say there's, um, there's, there's an essay yeah. in the Atlantic, which I haven't read, but is sort of like, uh, which, oh, but I don't know if you've read it as well, where it, I, the premise is like the death of the college essay and how like GPT-3 and like other AIs. Mm. Um, especially when you're thinking about like undergraduate essays and the way in which like undergraduates are taught and trained, um, that like the AI basically sort of undermines that and therefore like the kind of s- traditional system of learning 
But I, I, I think that, like, honestly, right. the, the we're, we're really like taking aim at the most like beloved parts of our society, undergraduate essays, and like sort <laughs> yeah. Of, um, I, I, to be perfectly writers. honest, I'd say, oh no, undergraduate <laughs> essays and clickbait writers are going to be automated. Uh, yeah. the, the thing that um. Which is bad. Yeah, it's 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 good unless you're a clickbait writer, yeah. right? Uh, but the this is this comes back to one of the things I wanted to say as well, right? That the one of the features of the post two thousand eight economy, especially as it's been facilitated by the expansion of the internet and so on, uh, has been just finding returns to scale. And the way that mm. the large language yeah. model chatbots tend to work is that they. They, it's not, and again, I, I don't think that they would create an, a, a total Ouroboros, but what they do is that they supercharge returns to scale, which means that if you are in, if you're living in the long tail of the economy, which uh, journalism clickbait writers are, but also which, you know, writers of the same five paragraph essay comparing Hobbes and Locke that gets written probably tens of thousands of times are, then yeah, then, then or if you are in an email make work busy job, the kind of thing that we've uh, you know created to replace the uh, the welfare state that allows like middle the middle class to reproduce itself while sort of slowly removing people from the productive economy, um, you know that yeah. the, these kinds of things are uh, they are where the scale is. Firstly, you know this like um, but also this is where uh, the the AI where say maybe content doesn't really matter but plausibility matters. Uh, these are the kinds of things that it's disrupting. But then you can ask, right? Like, it, and aside from the fact that it's an on-ramp to an industry, which I think probably says more about the industry that it requires a sort of clickbait writing on-ramp. Uh, the same thing is, I go, mm. what does this say about the five-paragraph undergraduate essay if it can be automated by something that just seems plausible? What does it say about make-work uh, email jobs that they can be automated by something that's just plausible enough to get by? You know. I mean, it's all ideology, right? And twas ever thus. Like uh, in, in the nineteenth century, in order to facilitate, you know, a leisure class and middle class, you had these sort of like these 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 clerk jobs. These like, you know, you go to work with a fountain pen and you you do a big double entry ledger all day, and then you know you do a good enough job that everything sort of kind of works, and it's not really necessary, but it's this like sort of it, it's a legitimizing function that reproduces itself. And I think we're going to see sort of like more of that but for fewer people i think jobs are gonna like uh, and especially creative jobs are gonna be like you're still gonna need people who pick up the phone and talk to people but fewer of them and uh the more the more jobs you have are gonna be more like sort of the adult daycare that we sometimes make fun of where it's like ah, oh, you know my boss brought in kombucha for everyone sort of thing i worked two hours today which is good that's a good thing um however not so much for all of the people who got fired in order to make that sort of like economically viable. Well, I think it goes back to like the question of what automation actually does to a job, right? Because automation doesn't eliminate mm. a job. What automation does, though, is it changes the balance of power by changing the amount of either human or fixed capital within the tasks of that job. For example, if you're making a linen coat, then you, and someone has hired you to do it, and you are sourcing the linen, cutting the pattern, sewing it, and finishing it, you have an enormous amount of power over that process. But also, it's very intelligible what it is that you're doing. You know what you're doing because you have a very good sense of your, the entire process of your labor with your relationship with it, with the outcome, and so on. One of the yeah. things that also lets you... You can even make a craft union out of this. You can be like, I am part of a sort of a, a brotherhood of linen coat makers, if you want to. <laughs> yeah, and then you could, you know, like rig elections or whatever. Um, but, right, uh, and then like, just become like somewhere where bankers can go hang out like hundreds of years later. Uh, but, you know, you can, you can then 
as you introduce automation, you know, what the thing that what actually happens is that the person hiring you to do the job takes on more power in the whole linen co-production process. All of a sudden, uh, number one, you don't need there are many more people who can maybe push a button on us and operate a steam loom than there are who can make do the entire linen coat making process. Uh, but also what that's also quite alienating because all of a sudden you don't you while you your job is to make linen coats, the tasks that you're doing might just be sewing a button. It might just be cutting one bit of a pattern and so on and so on. Um, and so I think we can say that's the it's it's one of these first is tragedy then as far as things I think where if we talk if we're talking about the um, the the economy that produced you know make work email jobs and, and content and clickbait and stuff uh, we're then saying you know that section of the economy uh, is going to it will no longer have artisanally produced uh, <laughs> its uh, various uh, clickbait articles and undergraduate essays instead there is a kind of um, uh, an almost division of labor. And then as that division of labor, as that automation comes uh, more through, then the your boss, and again, this is not just with like making, using something like chat GPT, but uh, for example, if your job is say, a copywriter is an easy one, right? You're no longer a copywriter, you just make prompts. And you know, your connection to the thing that you make is now much more tenuous and you're now much more alienated from what you do. But also someone who is prompt writer is different as a job from writer. There is it is less of a craft mm. and more of a task, and it was though in that and the trans and the transformation of artisanal craft based economies and the industrial revolution was one of the main things that created like the modern proletarian uh, proletarian class. One of the main things that created the economy that we know now. And so I yeah, get Walter Benjamin yeah. killed. <laughs> and so what I when I see this, I see okay, well that's. The process of proletarianization it didn't stop then. It didn't stop with nurses. Didn't stop. It, it came for junior doctors. It came for a lot of journalists and content creators. It came for people who work for the state. Came for train drivers. Um, and you know, it, it's a process. It doesn't necessarily and now, stop. And now, gentlemen, it's coming for our phony baloney jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is, and when we talk about as well, like Microsoft massively investing in OpenAI. That's going to bring a lot of these uh, large-scale language model tools to many of these email jobs. Uh, and so if, you're if your boss, if your company uses the Microsoft Office suite, then there might be more of an expectation that your formerly artisanal make-work email job might contain more of a production line element. And so, if we, I, and so I don't really... My concern with chat GPT and, and large language models is less about how well they work and the question is, do they work well enough to proletarianize a lot of people? And to the ad, I think the answer is maybe. I think the answer is yes. I think absolutely. I, I, I think that very strongly. And then, I, and then I think, where the hell do you go from there? And uh, social revolution of some sort, I imagine, <laughs> is the correct answer. But damned if I know how to pull that one off. I mean, I mean, the good answer, right, is uh, we're cha we change the act of writing itself in doing this, right? And it becomes kind of like old-fashioned and analog to sit and type everything out yourself. I mean, maybe, you know, people will still do it in the same way that people still listen to, like, vinyl records or whatever. Um, but uh, what you end up doing when you're writing is that you, you know, sort of you're crafting prompts that's following through on those prompts. You curate them accordingly. Um and the, the the nice version of this is we all keep our phony baloney jobs, but we have to work less at them, uh, and we get more time to like play video games or whatever, um, and we get to sort of enjoy a more like leisurely lifestyle. However, in order to do that, first you have to overthrow a capitalism, and that's mm. the hard. Part. That's that's <laughs> tricky, right? That is tricky. Um, yeah, so the, the large language model, easy. Well, I wonder whether like 
No, because one <laughs> yeah. thing that we've also noticed is you have like your sort of like typical, like we sort of have like the standard like sort of Silicon Valley guys who are kind of rubbing their hands of glee over the idea of AI, not because they sort of think that this is going to like make anything better, but because they're like, oh, we can use this to sort of threaten like people who we think, you know, might unionize or who might sort of like mm. say that we're bad bosses or like something like that. Um, you know, I think, oh, what was his name? Paul, uh, not Paul Adams. Paul Graham. Paul Graham. Yeah. I think he kind of like posted something along the lines of like, you know, this will be, this will sort of be like a kind of empowering thing for bosses. I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but that was sort of the vibe of it. And I do wonder whether like it's less about like the AI and much more about like, will bosses sort of be able to kind of use the threat of automation to basically like be able to like further discipline their workers, especially like in very, very precarious times. I imagine the idea of being like, well, you know, uh, you can't like collectively ask for, you know, we, we sort of see that even in like the current um, transport strikes right now, right? Like a lot of people who sort of like reply on tweets or like kind of call in talk radio, whose thing is about like, oh, these kind of like railway workers earn too much. Like, why don't we automate it? Like, why isn't everything like the DLR? Mm. And, you know, that isn't because like they're interested in like automating like railways or anything. It's because, you know, for them, it's, you know, it's, it's very much the case of why aren't these people being threatened with like, and you know, I, I wonder whether like it's the more yeah. disciplined approach. And I wonder whether like in the kind of True. in as like the kind of reeling from crypto and the realization about like the so, sort of web free economy is bullshit. Um, these kind of like relative successes of AI at the moment are much more useful in sort of like disciplining your workforce and preventing any sort of like dissidents than it is necessarily to like kind of move to a different type of economic model. I don't know. I know if that was long and maybe made, didn't make sense, but. No, no, that makes sense. I, I, surely it, it, it's both, right? And the, the latter is an intermediary uh, or the, uh, to the former, right? And it, it is used discipline. It will be used as a disciplinary tool and then it will automate it afterwards. It, it, it's keeping discipline while the ship is sinking. It's making sure that the rowers don't leave their post while they're at risk of drowning and don't try and get away from the whole thing altogether, right? There's a contradiction appears to me, uh, a wild contradiction appears, which is the entire economy is is sort of like right now propped up on getting people who do those jobs to come to the office on pain of death, right? Um, you have to come to the office, you have to sit in the office and work, um, and you have to sort of use public transit to get there. And, you know, increasingly, if we're, if we're just sort of like uh, disenfranchising those people in, in favor of some, you know, some chatbot or whatever, then what are we going to do about the one thing about which this this country's ruling class is genuinely enthused? Commercial rents. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, I, it's a genuine question because I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, that's that's. I mean, it, I think the question right always is: if you're going to disrupt something like commercial rents, who are you disrupting it for, and why? If you're disrupting it for the health of workers, mm. fuck off. Get back to this. Get back to your office and buy your pret sandwich. Uh, but if you're doing <laughs> yeah. it to, I don't know. That if you're doing it in a spasm of mass workforce discipline uh, and applying that kind of discipline to a group of people who have not been proletarianized yet, then um, it, it would be another one of those possible splits in capital. You know, so and the only, our only defense, well, not our only defense, but one of our bits of defense against AI happens to sort of be the landlords. <laughs> Weird. <Yeah>. Uh, <laughs> landlords versus chatbots. Whoever wins, we lose. Yeah. That's it. You know, and you know, and and that. Um, you know, I've also you know, I've I've tested this thing a, a little bit as well. You know, I've tried to get it to um, 
uh, to to work through sentences with syntactic ambiguities. Uh, and I do find it just frequently mm. dodges the question. Uh, so in in my favorite book, uh, there is it features a scene where a character oh my yeah, God. Uh, is talking to what's what's your favorite uh, book? It's Blindside Riley. by Peter Watts. Thanks for asking, Alex. Uh, wow, that's crazy. Uh, it, um, it, <laughs> I was blindsided by that answer. Yeah, uh, our cousin. And right. so, in trying to talk to an, an AI to determine if it's conscious or not, uh, one of the characters says uh, says to it, "Our cousins lie about the family tree with nieces, nephews, and Neanderthals. We do not like annoying cousins." Uh, so, for example, the use of the word "annoying" here. Uh, do you not like annoying your cousins? Do you not like that your cousins are annoying? Lie about the family tree. Are they? Variously around the family tree, what is this tree, and so on and so on. Yes, syntactic ambiguities. Yeah. Uh, so the, the answer, of course, it gives out is it is understandable that you do not like annoying cousins. However, it is important to remember that everyone has their own unique personality and traits, and it is not fair to generalize all cousins as being annoying. Additionally, it is important to treat everyone with kindness and respect, even if you do not always get along with them. It is possible to have a civil relationship with your cousins, even if you do not always see eye, eye to eye. And as silly as that is, the idea of please do not generalize to all cousins. Um, what we also have is is in pr when presented with something that's not even like that that to us would sound like a very very strange sentence. It can't help but produce a coherent answer, which again is one of these things where I think this will change the way that we interact with information, not necessarily for the better, uh, if only because imagine that logic right applied to something like uh, search. There are some people uh, as well, some of these tech thinkers, these futurists, who are saying. This is going to put Google out of business because we're going to further abstract the way that we interact with large amounts of information from humans. And weirdly, humans have been working very hard to do that with things like SEO, uh, with things like and, and, and or like just reducing the quality of Google searches quite a bit. Uh, but you know, when when interacting with uh, when you have to interact with search through again through another model that puts the information even further away from you, but also that at least at this point, is not able to recognize a bad question, I see that as further, um, let's say, causing further challenges to the way in which people will relate to, large, to the large amount of information that we have indexable, if you get my meaning. Yeah. You know, Google has already looked into this as well. Like They published a paper in 2021 on should we replace traditional search engines with large language models? Um, when they weren't even as powerful as they are now. So this is something that they are ha and have been internally considering and weighing the dangers of for a while. People say that this is going to kill Google. Google is on this. Um, whether they can adapt in time and whether they'll, you know, some competitor will, competitor will put a, a shitty product on the market first before they put a slightly better product that reserves their reputation later. Whether that, I don't, whether that happens, I don't know. But um, they are they are looking into this definitely. And um, yeah, this idea of like probabilistic knowledge um, is something I wanted to bring up in relation slightly to the college essay piece in the Atlantic. It was a good um, piece by this uh, tech analyst, tech analysts called uh, Ben Thompson, yep. who writes the Stratechery. Uh, this, this is one newsletter. of the sources of input for for TF. One of the places I, I go get uh, get my tech news. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I th I, I think you know he, he he's he's good. He's good. He has, has some insightful things to say often. And one of the things he said about this was um, he was talking about how this might change um, uh, homework for his children. And instead of uh, focusing on the production of knowledge, it would be about the interrogation of knowledge. In that you know, so you have all the knowledge available to you. There's no need to test that. 
Um, but what you need to know is how to apply that and how to see whether it fits. And a, a comparison I've seen some people make is with the appearance of commercial calculators during the sort of 60s onwards, when these things went from, uh, in the same way that AI research has gone from something that was only available in labs to something you can buy down the stop, shop. So how do you change what you test then in a math exam? And the answer is you add the calculator to the exam. You say, okay, well, we're not going to test you on your ability to multiply large sums because that is not something that is ever going to be testable in the future. So we need to look at how more comp how this interacts with the more complex systems. And I think this is going to be how knowledge production, knowledge search is going to change on multiple levels, whether that's Google search, whether that's essays, is it's going to be about interrogating knowledge. And it's going to be about interrogating machines. Which is gonna, be, which is gonna become very, very bizarre, I think, because you're gonna, you got, you are gonna have these conversations with someone who you're not sure about your knowledge, and you're not sure about your own knowledge, um, but you're trying to find out some truth. I, I hope it ends up like Disco Elysium. <laughs> yeah, that's it, what I can say. As from mm, what you explained, it seems like this is the the thing I sort of go back to again and again. The concept I think is most useful is alienation, which is where we talk about our distance from the thing, our distant, the distance that's imposed on us. Yeah. Either from the knowledge that we're trying to get, from the coat that we're making, from the email we're writing for our email job, you know, all and all of these kinds of, and it may feel weird to feel e alienated from an email at an email job, but what we're really talking about is our feeling of control over what we produce and do, and I think you know, and and as, mm. as someone who currently is wearing mass-produced clothing, right, I think that um, I'm I am I'm always remember like to be how the principles of properly applied Luddism should work, which is not to say that all clothing must be produced by artisans. If you can't make your own clothing, don't wear clothing, but rather to ask who wear, who wear and why, uh, who benefits, um, who's, who's designing the, either the steam loom or the chatbot for what end. And, um, you know, when, and I think hmm. of uh, alienation from the process of making clothes, like doesn't ne it's not necessarily a bad thing. Right, because um, you know, well, it, there are many, many people. It's sure you're not getting your like hand mangled in the yeah, loom. There, or there, whatever. there are many, many yeah. people, and it's good that all of us are dressed. Um, and it's good that there are many, many people, and we need large automated processes to support many, many people. The alienation comes from yeah. the relationship that we have economically to those processes. Uh, the fact that that we do still need people to make shirts, but that. They are not making shirts in the way that they would choose, using machines not designed by them for a process that they are forced to participate in. And so we talk about alienation mm. for something like an email job. That's why I say it's weird to think of yourself as being alienated from something that's already very alienating because you don't really know why you're doing it. But at least you can write the goddamn email. I want to know that when I get an email, when I get an email from a Democratic candidate that's like, I'm gay, I want to know if that's from a Democratic candidate and not an AI bot. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the thing, though. We, we've seen that it can get worse. You can lose an alienating job and and feel retroactively that you have had it sort of like robbed from you. And uh, you know, the obvious example in the UK is mining, for instance. A lot of people, a lot of miners, sort of like became active trade unionists because mining fucking sucks, and they didn't want their kids to have to do it. But it was still worse when you know pits closed and they found themselves without any sort of like uh, sense of meaning, let alone employment out of this. And so, mm. yeah, you may not like your bullshit email job, but yeah. I guarantee you there are people who also, will miss them. When also, one gone. thing that people often forget is just like, you know, the type, like that type of labor also sort of informs like the way that communities are structured and the way that like 
relationships mm-hmm. are built and you know it's hard it, this used to be an email well, town and they ripped well, the yeah, I mean, out yeah like to put it like you put it in blunt terms but it's like i think like people sort of you know not romanticized per se but it's kind of i think people ne- like necessarily underestimate like that in within these sort of like bullshit jobs also kind of come their own forms of like social relations and bonds uh and you know yeah. communities and stuff and you know these like obviously like these these themselves especially living in cities and precarious housing situations like inform their own like isolation but like the automation of these like will certainly make that isolation a lot worse um and that is like definitely something that isn't really talked about like very much when we think about automation it tends to often just be you know in some cases very much like well you know clickbait is fucking fake anyway so like who gives a shit um you know which 200 years time Cyber Sakir Sama <laughs> attends the uh, the Durham emails gala. <laughs> you know, I might not send emails, yeah. but my dad uh, worked really hard. My granddad's dad used to send but emails. But it kind of also just feeds into the sort of weird fantasies that a lot of these tech guys who are kind of optimistic about AI have, right? You know, and we spoke about that a bit with like the whole kind of like rad- the sovereign individual and you know that high but all the whole idea about Episode like coming soon yeah well like <laughs> you know the whole like you know uh being the sovereign individual uh you know it will kind of like you know that is sort of the outcome of uh advanced like neoliberalism but also you should really embrace that and kind of like you know have it being being like that individualized actually is a good thing um yeah, I like you know it's it's kind of something just to sort of like bear in mind in terms of like the consequences of like but the love that level of kind of like middle management automation and the fact that like yeah there's like in the hands of these Silicon Valley guys there is nothing that kind of comes after that it is very much like yeah you're isolated uh learn to like you know learn to love it and kind of here's more treats like for you specifically. There was a really good um, JSTOR article. I love the JSTOR blog. It always surfaces great stuff. But there was one um, which was a survey of the panic that happened when buttons became common. And oh. people people were really against buttons for a little bit because they thought, they thought uh, Riley, that it ate. No, Sorry, I, indeed, know, I, I said that. Riley, <laughs> you'll, love you'll love this. You'll Riley, love this, lad. They said, button yeah. enjoyer. <laughs> well, no, because the, they were like, well, it alienates you from the, from the process. Um, and there was genuinely some people when buttons were becoming common saying that, oh, but that stops you knowing what it is you're doing. It's not like a good old you know prank what, handle. I agree with that. Really I agree with that. That's there. so true. You know, <laughs> these young people mashing buttons on their phone. The button was know, at the beginning when, of the end. When I, when I play Tekken with my cousins and they mash the buttons yeah. uh, and they're not learning how each move works because they don't know how like to kind of use separate button combinations. Like, that's me. I'm mad about that. Bring back the big sort of like knife switches and stuff, yeah. So I, I think this is this is a good place to sort of to end uh, sort of episode one of our two parts of AI Week, which is that to remind to, as a reminder that number one, uh, it's not about the button; it's about your relationship with the button and about who forces you to have what relation. <laughs> oh, it's true right? about who forces you to have what kind of relationship with the button, and that whether you're talking about a language model or yeah. a steam loom or whatever, it. It's less about the. It's partly about the characteristics of the tool because the tool is designed by people who have goals as regards the tool. Um, but it's also about what your what is your yeah. social relationship with the tool, the designers of the tool, and the people making you use the tool. And I think and and when you press the button, does it give you a food pellet? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But moreover, right, is mm. that is that I think that all the people who are sort of arguing about whether or not 
uh, the various sort of increasingly advanced large language models are either the new iPhone or just a party trick are kind of they're having the wrong conversation. And I think the real question to ask is, uh, who is this good enough to displace? And what will the effects of that be? Mm. Uh, and yeah, I think a lot probably quite a few a people, yeah. especially given that our response to um, our response to deindustrialization, our response to basically uh, to the financial crisis, to all of these things has been uh, to prop the economy up with credit, which we've seen basically uh, sort of collapse for as a broad based um, tool of continuing to buy people's um, uh, 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 ideological uh, loyalty to the system that we're in. But also uh, the uh, bullshit jobs that the large sort of um, the, the large middle class reproducing daycare jobs uh, that were, again, a big part of the political sentiment uh, settlement. Right in the in the in the industrialized now deindustrialized world. Oh God, we're get, we're gonna do deindustrialization to de-service industry. <laughs> and you know, the, and you know whether or not you think GPT uh, three point five, Chat GPT, whatever, whether or not you think it's a party trick or the next iPhone, um, the way we've set up our economy is that something as no industry no service industry <laughs> only vape shops the last going concern but that so, that that a version of a human that can't process a syntactic ambiguity uh still could threaten uh you know a, a, a one of the pillars upon which our very stupid society is built so i for one want to thank uh, aei and the number eight uh, for uh, their sponsorship of this episode, and indeed every other episode of our show. A line manager, Trashbot3000. Uh, and I want to thank James for coming on and hanging out with us today. James, it's been delightful. It's been a pleasure, and that is not a scripted response. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. And don't forget, for part two of AI Week, where we will be talking specifically about... Um, how these things get applied in workplaces and oh, fucking woke culture. Everything yeah. gets a week. These oh, days. we didn't talk about the people who are complaining that it was woke. Uh, <laughs> just really yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah. The, the only the 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 only major argument for, I think, general AI intelligence is that when fucking Richard Hanania tried to like get it to like like agree with FBI crime statistics or whatever, it just tried to end the conversation with him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, uh, can we talk about something else? It's um, it's like a guy acting like an AI because he has a very large data set of people not wanting to talk to him, and so he just like replicates stuff that causes that behavior. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Anyway, uh, so thank you very much again to James. Thank you very much to all you listening. Uh, see you possibly on episode two of AI Week with Callum Cant from the Fairwork Institute. Uh, James, before you go, before we go, do you have anywhere you want to send people? Oh, um. They can go read me on my website, but I think that'll be dead soon with the rest of the journalism industry. So why not Why not buy my book? Um, I wrote a book, and it, I wrote it earlier this year, but it's still available now. It's called Beyond Measure. It's a history of measurement. And genuinely, Riley, I think you might like it because the key, th the key thesis of it is that the history of measurement is a history of increasing abstraction. And that we have, <laughs> and that we have, in in some ways, become alienated from uh, from measures. Anyway, no. If you like sort of pop history, pop science, it's called Beyond Measure, and it's all right. So yeah, absolutely. So do check that out. Anyway, uh, it's time for me to go have dinner because once again, all I have eaten today is uh, two pieces of toast. So I am hungry, 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 hungry. Bye, everybody.